0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to all of you. I wanted to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Garcia. He um, is trained as a urologist. He did an additional fellowship training in sexual medicine and neuro He then went to the UK and did a fellowship on gender reassignment surgeries. And he also founded the UCSF Genital Gender Confirming Surgery Program. He recently received um, an R01, which is an NIH funding grant. So he's been doing a lot of really interesting research in sexual health focused on male sexual health. So, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Lager. It's an honor for me to be here. Um, so I want to thank Dr. Lager and the, the, uh, the faculty and, and course organizers for the invitation. Um, um, my talk is going to be on sexual health for men, women, and couples. It's going to be uh, sexual health for people. So men, women, to, you know, there's a little section there on couples, and then also um, including transgender people. It's a patient population of great interest uh, to me. And um, I think, let let me discuss my disclosures. These are companies I consult uh, with and do research and such with. Um, No disclosures are in conflict with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, but I, I, the, I think the theme of my – I was thinking about what theme I should describe my talk, uh, you know, uh, as having. And I think it's the commonality of, um, of, of you know, uh, f- factors that go into sexual health and maintaining it and restoring it after treatment and with aging. Um, uh, you know, for many people – not for everyone in, in this world, but for most people, I, sh- I would say it's a fundamental, uh, you know, element of, of life quality. Um, and, you know, the challenges that people face uh, in recovery, after treatment, and in, with aging, and after surgery, uh, are, there's a commonality to these and a theme. So rather than talk about all these different groups separately, I'm going to talk about them separately, but I, I want to emphasize sort of at the beginning of the talk to, to look out for sort of thematic uh, points. Um, and then I think there's commonality certainly to the strategies uh, we're going to cover as well. Um, early in my, not even just career in my in college, I, you know, one of the things, the biggest influ- a big influence on me, uh, I majored in psychology, was this concept of the biopsychosocial model, uh, which was sort of uh, first described by George Engel in the late '70s, in the Journal Science, and the point it makes is very simple: is that people exist in two continuums, a physical continuum, you know, we're, we're made of, you know. A nervous system, muscle system, bone, you know, separate muscles, cells, organelles, etc. T- to the sort of subatomic. And then, you know, a social model. Uh, you know, we exist as individuals. Many of us have partners. Uh, we have a family, a community. We live in a culture, in a society, etc. cetera, um, with policies and, and all of that. And, you know, I think it's important to kind of remember both when it comes to health that and you know some of the studies that he described were cardiovascular health outcomes are driven by both continuums, not just the physical. And I think that with respect to you know one of the things I love about sexual medicine is that it's 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 like surgery; it's very organic, but it's also very interpersonal. And you know it, it, it can veer off into sort of the dimensions of other disciplines of medicine like psychiatry and stuff, where we have to kind of think beyond the body and you know what we can see and feel, but but things at home, dynamics at home and among people and this and that. So I, I think it's a it's a good it's a good sort of cornerstone to looking at this talk um, or this area of health, let's say. Mm-hmm. So talking about it for men and for women and men, sexual health, uh, and again I'm. Uh, talking about it, you know, about sexual health in recovery after various treatments, let's say cancer uh, and surgeries, uh, and also aging. Aging is not a disease by any means, but it's, it's sort of a, 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 something that we all go through in life. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, as, as some people, you know, go through therapy or illness and have to recover from that, uh, aging is, is, uh, is a part of life, but it's, it also affects sexual health. So I include that in, in sort of this catch-all you know, uh, who are we kind of addressing with these uh, with these uh, the things we're going to talk about? So, you know, for people that have undergone treatment, the uh, the psychological effects of cancer uh, treatments, menopause, andropause, etc., uh, are, are you know there there are many uh, fear and stress can decrease and in some cases amplify libido uh, after particularly after sort of sudden life events like diagnosis. And, uh, and treatment. Uh, the organic effects are also uh, many, um, you know, associated with cancer and, and treatments, neuropathy, pain, altered or decreased sensation, tissue changes for people that undergo radiotherapy uh, and sometimes chemotherapy, uh, compliance, um, the, the compliance of our tissues, lubrication, uh, and then hormonal changes, which as we all know affect bit of our mind and our, our disposition and interest in sex, but can also you know, affect us in other ways physically, hot flashes, uh, tiredness, etc. And I use the term andropause. It's a bit of a newer term, but it refers to hypogonadism, when men, some men with age, their testosterone levels go down. Uh, similar to, uh, to to menopause for women uh, uh, you know, decrease, natural decreases in hormones with ages, and also for people that have to take supplementation where the supplementation is is irregular and their hormone levels fluctuate. Age is a big factor you know the onset of of, uh, uh, of menses can be affected by treatments, uh, and the symptoms uh, can improve after you know, hormone-regulated processes like like menstruation or hormone replacement are are adjusted and and accounted for and realigned. Um, Menopause and andropause can be earlier uh, after radiation or chemotherapy or other treatments. Um, And, uh, you know, sort of aging-related hormone factors can compound effects of treatments uh, on tissues. Again, the compliance of tissue... Uh, you know, its readiness to bleed, decreased sensation, libido, etc., and certainly radiation chemotherapy can cause a lot of physical uh, issues as well as as we've already touched on tenderness, bleeding, pain, neuropathy, and such. Um, and I think it's very important to tell people. For those uh, you know, those of us in the audience who are not, uh are of you, that are not physicians, uh, that, you know, I tell people, my patients, you have to bring these issues up with whoever's treating you so it's on their radar. And if they can't help you, they can send you to someone that can, to kind of close the loop. Some things can happen in silence, and, and it's, it's not good for you, the patient, or, or for physicians, because we want to help people as sort of wholly as possible. And there has to be this dialogue. Similarly, I think physicians need to bring this up. We, as urologists or radiation oncologists, et cetera, provide all these treatments that affect patients in profound, different ways outside of our, our domain, cancer treatment. But we have to account for, for these effects and, and sort of you know, introduce sexual health into the dialogue during treatment so that these issues get raised. Um, The perception of sexuality and sexual function after cancer is, this is a lesson that we see a lot in medicine. Function after something is, to a great extent, driven by how well something functions before treatment. So sexuality, sexual function, the ease with which people you know, sort of operate in these domains in their life is driven a lot by, by their perceptions and, and, and how they function before everything happens. Um, um, so, you know, challenges treatment-related challenges to one's own sexuality could include not feeling sexual, decreased libido, uh, that includes libido, but is not limited to that. It's a lot of it is sort of self-perception. Um People with earlier, you know, life uh, sexual traumas um, can, you know, these things can kind of come out at different points in life. uh, And particularly when people aren't feeling sexual or they're already, their self-esteem and other things combine. Other things can sort of bubble up to the surface and become issues. Poor self-esteem, certainly. Negative body image, um, you know. A lot of literature and studies about you know how U.S. or in Western societies many girls and women have sort of negative body self body images early on in life, feeling undesirable, um, being single or partnered. Uh, I say some women, but some men too, uh, externalize their sexuality to their partners, uh, and this is a challenge when they're single uh, and certainly when they're going through sort of difficult life events. Uh, where their partners may not be as present, um, difficulty feeling pleasure uh, and difficulty achieving orgasm with sex these are things that I think all of us at some point may may sort of cross paths with or feel, and uh, they, they can be uh, sort of amplified after treatment um, with respect to management in a general sense. Um, you know, I, I tell patients that despite disease and treatment, it is still possible to think and feel sexual and achieve orgasm uh, via the five senses. Um, does everyone remember what the five senses are? I had to Google these. Uh, you know, sight. Actually, I, I felt I don't want to get caught not knowing my five senses. But it's, it's very, very important. So sight, uh, smell, hearing, taste, and, um, and, and touch. The most important one being touch. The rest are up here, and it's interesting because everything's up here. That's another big sort of thing I always talk about with patients is that orgasm, and you know, which is the the big endpoint in a lot of sexual health discussions with with people and patients. It's it's up here. It's not necessarily all down. It's not you know the wiring is down here, but it all happens up here. So um, uh, I think involving sort of a general approach to this is. To, to talk about involving your partner, to prepare, uh, confront, and manage sexuality-related issues, sexual practice-related issues, um, counseling may or may not have a role for some people. But I think you have to have an, people have to have an open mind to it. Support groups, uh, sex therapists, uh, sex therapists. Um, I've given talks to here at the cancer center to people who've had bladder cancer and prostate cancer about sexual health after treatment. And I think these support groups can be very, very good for people. I mean, you know, the people, I guess, at them are deriving benefit. That's why they're there. But, uh, but um, I think people always tell me that it's just good to talk about things and mainly to hear about how other people, A, are going through the same thing and, two how they sort of move on with certain things in their life that they may be experiencing. Um, I think an openness to adjunct treatments, physical therapy, you know, uh, exercises, biofeedback, stretching, um, the next one I think is extremely important, an openness to use of adjunct aids, sexual devices, uh, lubricants, dilators, vibrators, getting back to the five senses and, and orgasm being kind of up here. I, I tell people, you know, if you think about if orgasm exists up here, you can look at your body as sort of wiring. And, you know, our genitals is sort of the quickest way to achieve an orgasm. And that may be what we're used to, but after treatment with radiation or prostate surgery, other things where you know you may not have the function that you once had. Remember, there are lots of other eros- erogenous zones that we're born with, and if you look around in society, some people move, you know, move, go a long way using those and derive a lot of pleasure and benefit from that. And maybe you, in your life, you haven't sort of done that, but keep an open mind to. Uh, to, to other ways, <laughs> to, to other ways to kind of to, to get up here with your activity. Um, so, uh, alternative means of stimulation, exploiting the five senses, uh, and then there are medi- medical therapies. Uh, PDE five inhibitors, for those of you that don't know, are it's a class of drugs like Viagra, Levitra, and Cialis for men that that help that that are permissive to erections, that promote them or facilitate them, I should say. Drugs like pentoxyfiling, which I'll talk in a minute about, that uh, helps with tissue healing and nerve healing and recovery, including especially for sensation. Um, uh, Sexual function uh, can be approached as a couple's or solo approaches. Um, Again, this this concept of sensate focusing involving the five senses, um, here they are again. Um, And again, as I just mentioned, I encourage people to explore alternative sensory pathways to, to orgasm, um, self stimulation versus stimulation by a partner is something to bring up. You know, people undergo these treatments a little, you know, on average a little bit later in life, middle age or beyond, and by then we're all very set in our our ways in terms of sexual practices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And those are it's a hard habit, you know, hard patterns to break out of. So, um, you know, people have different thoughts about self stimulation or being stimulated by your partner. You know, you know, in different ways. So a lot of this is just, I think, you know, we as physicians and and with patients, we have to both bring it up, both talk about it, and and cover it. Um, uh, exploring new positions during sex is another sort of obvious touch point on this. And then another thing is, you know, delaying and amplifying orgasm. There's a lot of, you know, in the last few years, I do surgical device design and stuff, and uh, you know, I've paid, I pay attention to certain things. I, I go to a you know a, st- a store here in the city that has a chain of stores that sell sexual devices. I, I have to buy things for my patients, uh, some of the transgender surgery, and I see a lot of the devices out there. And what you know, uh, in, in particular, Good Vibrations. It's a fantastic chain of stores. They're very educated there, and they have a sexologist that works there and stuff. And they say that in just the last two three years. Uh, in our society, you know, there's like the, the taboo of sexual devices has been broken. And there are sexual devices for men, for women. And it's sort of not a kind of a – it doesn't have the sort of smut factor that it did, you know, uh, you know, in a different generation. And there are devices, um, Kegel exercises, things that, you know, women can insert into themselves to practice with it, give biofeedback, um, all sorts of novel things that you would never even – Think of that—that uh, that, that, that seem to that work for people. So I encourage my patients to, you know, go to places like that and just look around. They have a stat that I'm not promoting them. I have no relationship with them, but a place there or a place like that that has a staff that's engaging and, and well educated and can talk about things and answer questions. And I tell people, I suggest to people that they go with their their partner. Um, uh, Dr. You know my my chair, Dr. Carroll, and I developed a, an app, a smartphone app uh, that's called Kegel Nation. That's free. And uh, it helps, let, lets people time, keep track of how long they contract and relax during a Kegel exercise. And in it, it's, it's, it's on iTunes. In it, you know, I talk about, you know, that, that Kegel exercises, there's a lot, there's literature to suggest that they improve, they can be used to delay orgasm for men and also, I think, amplify uh, orgasm for women. Um, and, and I think that learning how to control your muscles, it's something akin to tantric you know exercises that I, I'll confess I don't know that much about, but I do know some, many sex therapists cover that. Uh, and there, when you look, kind of look into it, aside from the historical stuff, it's from the Far East and this and that, it's, a lot of it is breath-holding, muscle relaxation, and I think body control, being in tune with your body. And that, I think, is the theme that a lot of sex therapists will say is spot on. You have to be more in tune with your body and be open to different ways of being in tune with your body. Here's the app, Um, it's called Kegel Nation, Uh, you can find it on the, it's free, Uh, find it on iTunes. It's in the the UCSF store. The other thing is pentoxyphiline. Uh, You know, in in my initial area of urology, men's sexual health, we treat a lot of penile curvature disease, and uh, there's a lot of literature that shows that this drug helps, uh, and, and, and literature explaining how, it helps with wound healing, improving blood flow to tissues. And restoring a nerve sensation, for about 40 plus years, it's been given to diabetics with neuropathy, numbness in their feet, and it just helps restore. It promotes microvasculature to, to nerves, and it helps promote, you know restore sensation. So we use it in urology with great success in a lot of things. Uh, we after prostatectomy here at UCSF, part of our you know men's sexual health rehab. Regimen is pentoxifilin. We've done a lot of animal studies that show that it works and how it works. And uh, it's an excellent thing. And I think, particularly for people that have have undergone radiation uh, and have numbness issues and sort of tight, hard tissue that's been changed by treatment, it's very helpful. And if you look in the literature in PubMed, this is actually, this slide is now about a year old. There are many, 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 many randomized controlled clinical trials uh, with pentoxyphilane. Uh, a lot of it is on you know, radiotherapy damage after chest or after breast cancer radiation and stuff, but, uh, but also in urology and other sexual function areas. So let me switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, some treatments specific to men. Um, so specifically with erectile dysfunction, the definition of erectile dysfunction is the inability to achieve or get to achieve or maintain an erection sufficient for satisfactory sexual performance. And I think the oper- uh, one of the operative words in this definition is satisfactory. It's a relative term. In a, in a lot of sexual health things are relative, uh, but, um, uh, but but that also begs the question in the dialogue with a physician that we have to talk about. Well, what do people what do, they, what do they define as satisfactory? What are their expectations with treatment? Um, because sometimes you know, we have patients whose you know, understanding of things or expectations may not, may not be reasonable, and it's very helpful to try to talk about that early on um, in treatment. Um, and it's, erectile dysfunction is also a symptom, can be a symptom of one or many underlying diseases and non-disease factors. So again, the biopsychosocial model Physical stuff, cardiovascular disease, and then non-disease things in the sort of psychological and social domain. So any condition that affects uh, uh, mood, affect, uh, physical things like the, the, the nerves that govern erection are arteries, uh, smooth muscle, the tunica, which is you know, a tendinous, it's a connective tissue in the penis, uh, can affect erectile function. Maintenance of an erection is important, but again, as I just mentioned, satisfaction is subjective and sexual performance is multifactorial, not least of which with, your, with whoever your partner is and their function and their expectations and their rhythms, but, uh, but other things as well. Um, Psychogenic erectile dysfunction is another type of erectile dysfunction it's it's really a minority it, it's the it's less common but it's the persistent inability to achieve or maintain erection satisfactory for sexual performance due uh, predominantly or exclusively to psychological or interpersonal factors um, so that's one type of erectile dysfunction the other is organic impotence so it's not psychogenic it's due to physical issues. Uh, again, due to things at the top of the slide. Um, psychogenic ED, you know, includes performance anxiety, which is a factor for a lot of people that have had treatment and are kind of getting back into things or, you know, haven't been sexually active for a long time. And later in life, they have a, a new partner. And that, that's not an uncommon thing we encounter uh, as urologists. I think it's important to understand that current function, to, to understand a patient's current function as it relates to past function, You know, life is a continuum. Uh, Our sexual function is best when we're young and roughly at puberty. And uh, you know, by the time we're very, very, very old, we we all kind of get it that it it declines. So it has to decline. It follows that it has to decline at some point along between puberty and old age, extreme old age. Um, So you know, there are subtle life-related changes that aren't necessarily a function of disease, but just it's part of the way sexual function changes with with age um, i think patients have to you know should should give a clear description of the problem we try to elicit this are the problems due to erection related issues or premature ejaculation as we know premature ejaculation for a man after ejaculation the, the you know there's a, a a refractory period and the, the penis doesn't become re- erect gets flaccid and, uh, and and we have to discuss, you know, make sure to tease all this out in our encounters. There are health factors um, uh, to understand diabetes and such. I'll get to those in a minute. Social issues: um, Is there a partner? Is the partner supportive? Uh, GGG is good giving and game, a term term coined by uh, Dan Savage, uh, who's a national sex co- uh, column a columnist. And uh, but it's you know he talks about this this concept of you know. We should all be, with good, sort of a a fulfilling sexual life, we should be good giving and game with our partners. We should be involved, open-minded, and flexible, just like with a lot of things in life. And uh, so those are, again, issues. Uh, You know, do do people come to the table for help with preconceived notions to dispel? A common one I see is, you know, taboos about self-stimulation. You know, for a lot of treatments, I encourage patients to self-stimulate so they don't, you know, they can kind of get a better sense if the medicine's working or not. It helps people avoid an embarrassing situation with a partner. But then people have issues with self-stimulation, with masturbation. And so these are things that we have to talk about in our encounters and try to find a way to move forward um, uh, you know, together, and then of course the expectations that people bring to the table. Uh, male erectile dysfunction uh, or erectile dysfunction, uh, you know, is 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 uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's a continuum. A sexual function exists on a continuum of aging. So before a before age 40, it's quite uncommon, but as people age, it gets more and more common. And not unsurpri- not surprisingly, uh, with, with greater age, it's more common. Uh, and it affects a lot of people, um, and as I said earlier, psychogenic erectile dysfunction is much less common. The more common type is what we call organic impotence. Uh, there's also neurogenic impotence, so a man that goes to surgery, let's say prostatectomy, with great sexual erectile function, and, and afterwards has a significant and steep decline, uh, or a sudden decline, that's you know, neurogenic, and it's treatment-related. and. Um, yeah, so risk factors. You know, there's a, there's a saying that it's been shown that erectile dysfunction is one of the earliest harbingers of cardiovascular disease. So for that reason, the heart, cardiovascular, the penis is the window to the heart. It's one of the earliest signs of cardiovascular disease. And the biggest culprits are diabetes, diabetes mellitus. That's DM. Smoking, and then just general heart disease, multifactorial, high cholesterol, et cetera, Familial or genetic issues. And then there are other factors like surgery, you know, prostatectomy, bladder, rectal surgery, um, and other things. Chemo and radiotherapy, medications that, uh, that that people can be on for cardiovascular disease, can also cause um, erectile dysfunction. Also, uh, some um, you know drugs for depression and anxiety, uh, you know, psychiatric drugs, uh, trauma, the obvious things, and then hormonal problems. Um, diabetes doubles the risk of erectile dysfunction in people so I, I never fail I mean I never stop emphasizing to people of all the things we can talk about today the things that, the, the, the intervention that's most going to prolong your life is stopping smoking if you're a smoker and getting better control of your diabetes because your diabetes will get you every which way including sexual function but other, even things that I'm not going to treat you for I'm a urologist but eyesight, uh, other things you know so, it's a big thing. Uh, treat um, cardiac disease, even if it's treated, significantly increases risk for erectile dysfunction, and high blood pressure, even treated, increases it. Um, modifiable risk factors of drug abuse, including alcohol, cigarettes, marijuana. Um, as I'll mention in a second, marijuana affects our hormonal access mm-hmm. and can lower testosterone, which will affect uh, erectile function in men. Um, Symptom measurements, indices. I'm not going to go through this in too much detail, but um, basically, in urology, we have questionnaires that we don't we don't treat based on these numbers, but they're a good way of bringing to the forefront issues that people may have. So there are questions on five domains. Erectile function is only one of them. Orgasmic function, sexual desire, intercourse satisfaction, and then overall satisfaction. Um, Uh, And then there are other questionnaires that focus more on erectile function and stuff like that. But I think it highlights the fact that there are many domains to sexual function, not just erections. Limitations, you know, all inventories rely on self-assessment, so people have to be honest and consistent with them. I mean, think about them when they fill them out. Um, There's a high potential for report bias. This is a bit more – these are sort of more academic points. We also have to be sure that when we fill these out, that people are understanding how to fill them out. It should be without what is your your, these functions without the aid of Viagra or Levitra or Cialis, so without drugs. Um, And then we have to make sure that we're capturing all of those domains, either with the questionnaire, the inventory, or just in talking to each other, talking in a clinical setting. There's lots of tests that we can do for erection function. These are kind of now more academic and, and really more historical tests. I think the company that, that made this device, it's called a Rigiscan, has, uh, I think is no longer in business. But, but basically, you know, there are ways of measuring uh, the, 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 you know, the degree of erection um, when men are asleep. Uh, you know, men get nocturnal erections. It's the body's way of flushing fresh blood into the penis tissues. Uh, to, wait, to wash away waste and bring nutrients and stuff like that, and uh, so men have you know four to five uh, or three to five erections a night. Uh, they wake often wake up with erections, and that's one of the things that we see go down with age or with erect with organic impotence. Men will, you ask them, and men will say, actually, I don't really wake up with morning erections anymore, or I do, but they're very, they just last a second and they're much less rigid than when I was younger. Um, These can be, anyway, today it's more for academic and sort of medical legal thing, uh, medical legal issues. We don't really do this very often. There are other tests that we can do in the clinic called a combined uh, injection and stimulation test where we inject a liquid form of an erection drug like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis. Those are pills. There are liquid forms of that that we can inject and see if the penis is working or not. Uh, For psychogenic erectile dysfunction, if you give a man an, an, an injection and he gets a great rigid erection in clinic, it's, it's, you know, it's a way of diagnosing and also reassuring people that the problem is not this. It's something else that governs this. Um, so that's how we in urology, just to give you some information and a sense of how we approach these things. Um, there are some pitfalls when people are extremely anxious. Even these drugs won't work because anxiety literally short-circuits erections. So a man, when he's very anxious or in a state of fear, like fight or flight kind of thing, cannot get an erection uh, because sort of physiologically, nerves firing release chemicals that sort of shut that activity down. Mother Nature figured, you know, if you're fighting for your life, an erection is not something you really need at that time. So, so uh, and here's a picture that sort of, you know, this is anatomy and physiology. The two nerve nervous nerve systems that govern erections: the sympathetic, uh, and here are some of the you know T11 L2, um, and then the parasympathetic nerve uh, system. Um, you know, in medical school, you know, you learn point and shoot. Parasympathetic helps govern erection and and, and, and such, and the sympathetic is is ejaculation uh, during sex. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, and again, you know the sympathetic is the fight or flight that gets activated with anxiety, with nervousness, with fear, and that short circuits the other one, the parasympathetic, which is the one men need for erection so it's it 's not just saying it it's there 's a fit, absolutely rock solid physiologic basis for how anxiety and depression and other things again, the biopsychosocial model can affect erect, sexual function for men. And this, these, this picture on the far right shows where Viagra and you know the related drugs uh, interact with uh, with uh, with uh, the, these muscle cells. This big pink thing is a muscle cell uh, to get it to relax to facilitate erection. During erection, the penis engorges with blood, and um, it's it has a you know a tunic on, encasement. That is not is not elastic. So as it keeps filling, it gets a little bit bigger and more what we call tumescent. But at a certain point, it stops getting bigger. Otherwise, the penis would just blow up and explode. It, 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 then it start it, it it stop stops expanding and it gets firm and hard. And that's that's a rigid erection for intercourse. And um, that that's a, that relies on a complex interplay of you know blood flow, inflow, outflow, the muscle cells relaxing to allow the blood to. To fill the spongy tissue of the penis, which is what gets engorged with blood uh, to, to make the erection. So, anything that affects these, you know, these sort of physiologic and and sort of literal valve systems, uh, including blood flow to the penis, will obviously affect erection. Um, another sexual health issue for men is injury. Some men, as I talked about earlier, have abnormal curves to their penis Um, these are called there's a disease called Peyronie's disease uh, and it's a disease you know basically uh, some people are predisposed to it but others sort of get this state of abnormal curvature due to scarring related to injuries during intercourse an acute bending injury like a buckling injury Um, uh, you know leads to to bleeding and inflammation and scar tissue, and as we all know, what happens with any scar in our body, if you've ever seen it on your skin, it contracts, it shrinks. So, you know, scar tissue on the top of the penis will cause it to bend upward, and that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell, how these penile curvatures happen. It, it also causes the penis to shrink. Um, other things that cause the penis to shrink, it looks like some surgeries that involve the pe- in the pelvis um, men, sometimes after prostate surgery, not all men, but some men report shrinkage of their penis because with less blood flow, uh, there's just less nutrients and more sc- you know, scarring happens with damaged nerves. The, uh, the penile tissues don't get stimulated. And like anything, if you've ever had a cast on your arm, if you don't use something frequently, what happens? It atrophies a little bit. So that's how, that's how men can come by uh, shrinkage. Uh, and curvature sort of after trauma or after surgeries and trauma, uh, respectively. Um, here again is the George Engels model. Uh, you know, different causes of ED. We've kind of covered this already. There's, you know, vascular, vascular neurologic, um, hormonal issues. We haven't talked that much about that. I'll cover that in a second. And then cavernosa, the corpora cavernosa are the two spongy tissue rods within the penis that, uh, that that getting gorged with blood, um, so issues with that will cause uh, will cause erectile dysfunction. Uh, we've covered a lot of this: uh, neurogenic stroke, that's CVA, cardiovascular accident, spinal cord injury, diabetes, uh, radiation treatment, that's XRT, trauma, um, hormonal issues. Um, you know, aging-related decrease in testosterone, uh, pituitary problems. Um, marijuana will affect uh, the hormonal access and lower, d- lead to a decreased release of testosterone. Mm-hmm. Vascular stuff uh, are issues like diabetes, uh, and then medications, antihypertensives, alcohol. Uh, alcohol is another potent, well, a fairly clear, uh, you know, it has a, a negative effect on erection quality. Um, and it's important to remember that most cases are 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 classified as mixed, so it's not just organic, but neurogenic, psychogenic, you know, medication related, etc. cetera. Um, in our clinic, you know, we, we start by, you know, a, any physician starts an encounter, at least especially a first encounter with a good history and physical, you listen and learn, and part of that includes expectations and practices and uh, outlooks on things, and um, and then we, uh, we assess their goals and expectations, and then we, we uh, make a diagnosis. And then with any treatment, you know, we try to, the simplest treatment first, diet and lifestyle changes, if they are smokers, stopping that, getting a little exercise. Exercise has been shown to improve erectile function. Um, and then we move up the ladder to pills and such, you know, other treatments that are more and more invasive. Um, it's important to remember are people healthy enough for sex? So men and women, uh, the New York Health uh, I think it's Association uh, has different class, risk, you know, risk classes for for activities, and uh, sex is a physically strenuous activity, and some people, people with palp, you know, heart angina, uh, you know, are not, you know, are, are very severe heart issues, uh, you know, we don't. Um, People, like, people with those issues will come asking for Viagra or for treatments and we have to be sure that they're healthy enough for sex too um, so I always involve a cardiologist uh, in that decision um, uh, and with regard to treatment. Uh, are their expectations or concerns reasonable there meaning the patients um, and again I think a lot of our interactions is reassurance and particularly about aging subtle aging related changes and um, yeah, there are other issues that men come with ejac- concerns about ejaculate volume and, and so forth um, that we cover. Um, and then I'm going to skip through this in the interest of time, but there are lots of studies that we can do in clinic, uh, penile ultrasound color flow doppler studies. We don't do these all in all patients, but we can do them in the right in patients with particular histories, but we can look at blood flow in the penis um, and um, look at the patterns. Um, As far as management, I already talked about, I just mentioned, we start with the simplest interventions first, uh, and the simplest is non-medication related, Uh, you know, lifestyle changes or adjusting other medications. Uh, There are vacuum erection devices, uh, oral medications like the PDE5 inhibitors, uh, Levitra, Viagra, Cialis, and then there's injection therapy, injecting a liquid drug that does the same thing but directly into the penis, Uh, fewer side effects with that. And then sort of the last sort of tier is penile surgery, which is placing a penile prosthesis. Um, Medication changes, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, sort of blood pressure medications, psych meds, smoking cessation, uh, people that are on chronic uh, pain control medications, opioids uh, can get a lot of hormone-related issues, and as far as erectile dysfunction issues, Alcohol intake is a big factor. Exercise, we can't emphasize this enough. I mean, one of the biggest issues for American people, not just men, but women, is exercise today uh, or a sedentary lifestyle. So even very mild exercise can be, can have significant uh, benefit. Um, psychosocial support, again, George Engel's biopsychosocial model. It's very important to involve your partner. Um, and then cardiac evaluation when indicated. Uh, oral therapies, uh, Viagra, Libitra, and Cialis, um, they work very well. They don't give you an <coughs> erection. They facilitate an erection. So I, I tell men you have to be sort of aroused physically and mentally. Go, right, go ahead. What is N-O? Is that nitrous oxide? Yes, nitric oxide. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the chemicals in the pathway for erection physiology. Yeah, sorry. Uh, not sure where I... Okay, yeah. Um, I don't know where the oh, oh yeah. It it exercise increases nitric oxide production. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. It's on the. It's part of the physiology of erection. Um, But you know there are some side there are side effects. They tend to be mild, but um, headaches, stuffy nose, muscle aches. With some drugs like Viagra, you can see blue vision. They're all benign things, but we have to be warned about these, uh, warned the patients about them. And then uh, it's very important people with significant cardiovascular disease uh, or people who are on nitrates uh, for their heart disease are at risk for excessive drop in blood pressure and they should not be prescribed these. Um, There are PDE5 inhibitor receptors in the tissues of the penis. Uh, Vacuum constriction devices uh, it's an older form of treatment. A lot of men don't really like this because it does interfere with spontaneity. And you got to put it on. You basically create a vacuum over your penis, and it allows the penis to passively engorge and get bigger. Um, but you have to. The man has to wear a rubber band at the base to keep the blood there, and it doesn't lead to especially rigid erections. Um, There are other therapies that can be, the medication can be put into the urethra. Um, The limitation with these is that about for a third of men, it it causes severe burning in the urethra. So some patients uh, get that and don't really like to continue with that. The next sort of tier of treatment is uh, penile injection. We call it intracavernosal injection. We inject liquid um, chemicals that basically have the same functions as the PDE5 inhibitors, um, or other drugs on that. Picture I showed uh, that you know lead to this cascade of effects that result in a rigid erection. Um, as awful as the combination of, of needles and a, a penis sound, especially for men, uh, most of them find it a very satisfactory and relatively painless treatment. Uh, and and uh, it, it gives better, we can control the dose uh, over a wider range than with pills. So it's, uh, it's, it's got great benefits to men. Has to be done correctly, so they should be done with a urologist at the beginning. Um, penile prosthesis is sort of, as I said, the last tier of treatment. It's implanting something into the penis that either is already hard and stays hard, or uh, an inflatable device that gets hard and goes back to being soft uh, when the, when the man is not having inter- or trying to have intercourse. Uh, it does disadvantages are that it requires a surgery, but. Um, um, there's good durability and significant satisfaction with these surgeries for men. Um, There's two types, there's the rigid kind, which I mentioned, two malleable cylinders they are always hard, but they can be bent. When you have two uh, and the penis is straightened out, there's enough rigidity, axial rigidity, to allow penetration. And then when the man is not having sex, uh, he can sort of bend it down and sort of wear it. Uh, But he always has, is is always in a state of erection. And then the sort of the newest and and, 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 considered the the, the most popular, uh, uh, the gold standard is an inflatable device because it better mimics natural function. When a man is not having sex, his penis is flaccid. When he wants to have intercourse, he squeezes a pump in the scrotum that lets saline from this little reservoir that's hidden behind the pubic bone. It lets saline pushes the saline into these two uh, inflatable cylinders inside the penis, and they, they get full of liquid and rigid, and uh, it's a very natural feeling erection. And this surgery does not interfere with sensation at all. I'm going to just switch gears one more time and talk about sexual function in transgender and gender non-binary people. Um, I think everyone knows transgender people are people that whose uh, whose sense of their gender, which is an inside Perception does not match their the, their gender on the outside of their body, the gender that they were assigned at birth. We're all assigned at birth uh, gender at birth based on our anatomy. We have a penis or a vagina, or we don't, and you're a boy or a girl. Uh, and um, and you know, people that feel different on the inside uh, suffer from what's called gender dysphoria. And uh, gender non-binary people are people on that spectrum, but their gender doesn't exactly fall in, on the spectrum. So it's not either male or female, but something in between. Um, and this group of people are, are much less studied uh, in terms of sexual function than non-transgender people. And I included them in this talk because they're a part of our society. Uh, we're learning a lot very quickly about them, uh, and, and not about them, but about health and sexual function for people um, uh, before and after surgery, particularly after surgery. Uh, because of the surgeries, the genital surgeries that uh, some transgender and gender non-binary people can undergo, uh, involve creating genitals more in line with their in, in per, internal sense of gender. Uh, not all transgender people undergo surgery, but a uh, genital surgery. But for those for those that do, these are important issues. So I included them here, um, and I think the focus for this in this part of the talk is, is really post-operative changes. So, um, fung- you know, an anatomic function is generally as normal as, as it is in the non-transgender population. But with surgery, we completely, you know, male to female, we remove the penis, keep some of the skin, and create a, a, a vagina in a space that didn't exist, and create a clitoris using the penis tissues uh, that, uh, that, uh, that we salvage and so forth. So it's, it's a major rearrangement. Um, and sexual function can be complicated by post-operative changes, um, delayed wound healing, strictures of the neo-vagina, and then lack of erectile function. Um, so men that undergo transgender men that undergo creation of a penis, uh, it's generally skin and fatty tissue. There's no intrinsic erection mechanism uh, as, as exists in a natal penis. That's a penis, you know, uh, in, in someone born with a penis, um, the anatomy is different. So, uh, unless they these men uh, get a prosthesis placed, they're never going to get an erection. So, these are just as it affects non-transgender men not having an erection. Uh, it, it affects these men as well. Um, I think patient expectations are really, really important uh, with any patients, not just transgender patients. But uh, this is a panel that I. Where I train in England, and I should give credit to my colleague uh, Philip Thomas from Brighton in London, who does all the vaginoplasty, most of the vaginoplasties in the UK. Uh, there's an artist out there who did like 300 plaster casts of, of women's vaginas. And he shows it to patients um, to make one point, and I've added a couple of other points. One, the point he makes is that these are all natal women, they were all born with vaginas, and they're all very, very different. Uh, looking, and so there is no textbook anything. Just like there's no textbook sexual function or optimum function, there's no textbook correct genital anatomy. There are subtle differences, you know. So people, you know, a lot, many patients come concerned or sort of fixated on the idea of the, getting the perfect vagina made for them. And we make the point that they get the vagina or penis that their body intended. That's how I express it. That your body intended. For you because i 'm using your tissues, not someone else's but yours so um, so that 's one point, the other is that you know, part of expectations is that some things, based on the tissues that you have, may not be possible. So with transgender surgery, the labia tend to not be especially prominent as they can be in some women. Uh, it's, it, there's a spectrum of these features, and where patients will fall uh, is based on their body and what tissues are available. And then another issue is that vaginal depth, uh, which a lot of people are very concerned with because I think we grow up just like men are obsessed with penile length. Uh, transgender women, you know, n- some can be very concerned about having adequate depth, and uh, vaginal depth does not really define a vagina. These are all vaginas, and looking at them, we can't tell how how capacious they are. So these are all very subtle things, but they're important to cover. I just do want to say um, that there are, I did include a few surgical pictures. I think this is an educational class or talk, so it's not especially graphic, but if blood is an issue. Please step out for just a minute. Um, but just to show you how things are made, we basically create the same structure: a penis and the clitoris. They're homologs of each other. The clitoris is much smaller and generally doesn't get it as erect as a penis. But otherwise, they're very they're the same structures. So the most erogenous part of a penis is the glands. So to create a clitoris for a transgender woman, we preserve part of the glands, uh, the tip of the penis, the head and the nerves and and vessels to it, that's in the middle panel, and we separate it. So in the far right panel, you see the clitoris that I've, um, the little button of of glands tissue, and I'll I'll fashion it into a button, and the nerves and vessels leading to it, and the the structure down below will be discarded, that's the penis. Um, The urethra is shortened in this surgery, just to give you a sense of what happens, because we can't talk about sexual function without understanding anatomy. Um, the urethra is shortened, and uh, it's sort of opened like a flower. Uh, here on the far left panel, you see some of the urethra that's been opened and just sort of laid out uh, just below the clitoris. The opening to the urinary tract is at the bottom of that long rectangular red strip. Uh, to, to line the vagina, the uh, the most, uh, most ideal tissue to use is the penile shaft skin. So all the skin of the shaft, excluding the head or the glands, um, we, we just invert it. It's a tube, already a tube. We close, get rid of the penis, close off the end, and then dunk it into itself so that the skin is now on the inside of the tube as opposed to the outside of the tube. And now that we have a tube with skin lining the inside, we just need a place to put it, and we create a space between the rectum and the, uh, the prostate and bladder uh, uh, where the vagina is in a natal woman. And we create a space there and then put the little tube, the, the vaginal tube, in there. Um, and here's I'm holding an orange dilator here in this picture on the right uh, and the dilator is pushing the vaginal tube into its new uh, space and um, then this little purple line here I'm going to make an incision in the skin above what was originally the base of the penis, an incision there through which the clitoris and the urethra can sort of open up into the outside world Um, and then all this extra tissue on the the side which is scrotal tissue will be excised to make uh, uh, labia, uh, without going into any more details, I think that's about it, um, or most of it. Uh, the genitalia that we can make is is very beautiful and very natural looking. Uh, it is it we basically recreate female anatomy uh, when beginning with you know originally male anatomy. Um, there's a clitoral hood, the clitoris beneath it, which is highly erogenous, um, and then a vaginal cavity. Uh, you know, where, the, where the, my finger is here in this picture. Um, there are some vaginoplasties. Vaginoplasty is the term for creating a vagina. Not all women plan to have penetrative intercourse with a partner. Um, it's important to remember, without veering too far into too many details on transgender surgery, that women that get a cavity made have to dilate and induce it for the rest of their lives. And for some people, that's burdensome, and especially if they're not going to really use it for penetrative intercourse, they'd rather do away with it. Other women uh, who've had HIV and anal cancer or any any treatment that requires radiation of the rectal area um, may not render them to be good candidates for creating a a cavity, so they get a a vaginoplasty. It's the same vagina without that little cavity. Um, And uh, it's the same surgery, uh, but without any depth, and that's why we call it zero depth. Common questions, you know, uh, do do these women have erogenous sensation in and around the vulva? The answer is absolutely yes. Uh, in the literature, sexual you know ability to achieve orgasm is is described as eighty to to ninety percent. At, at our series here at UCSF so far, uh, it's hundred uh, percent, and that's erogenous sensation, the ability to achieve an actual orgasm at the time, you know, by stimulation. Uh, it's generally clitoral stimulation. Uh, um, uh, although many women report an ability to achieve orgasm with vaginal penetration, we think there's a lot of unknowns in this field. Uh, we think that that's not just in, for trans people, but uh, orgasm is not, it's not entirely understood either. But we think it's, you know, stimulation of the clitoral, of the uh, prostate, and the rectum can lead to orgasm. So a lot of people practice different types of intercourse, including anal intercourse, uh, men and women, trans and non-trans. So these are some of these other sensory pathways to appear for orgasm that I tell patients to explore. I don't name them all, but I just tell them, look, there are different ways to to get up, you know, to to achieve orgasm, and uh, you should consider what's the right fit for you to explore. Many of the, uh, I'd say the majority of uh, trans women uh, that I've operated on report that their orgasms are actually better than before surgery. And most of them will ready, readily acknowledge the orgasm, it's about the same, it's as good, it's certainly not worse, but it, it feels better up here because it's with the body that they should have had. Um, average vaginal depth is four to five and a half inches. The average American, or I think it's American, erect penis is five and a half, five and three quarter inches. Um, what happens if they stop dilating? Their vagina, neo-vagina, will stenose, shrink, and uh, in many cases they'll, we won't be able to rescue it, to re it. Uh, are these vaginas self-lubricating? No. So um, it's skin that was originally on the outside of the body, so it doesn't have an exudate like a natal woman's vagina does with arousal. So they have to, uh, it's important to remind them, they have to use lubricants. Um, and then... Uh, is sa- what about satisfaction and regret? Satisfaction is extraordinarily high with genital gender confirming surgeries. I think mainly because of the profound impact it has on their quality, overall quality of life—not just sexual function, but it's profound. Uh, and regret is extraordinarily rare. I mean, it's anecdotal, where people—you know—people are always. Don't you ever get patients that you know wake up one day and say, "Oh, I, this is a mistake," you know? I've, I've never, I've never. You know, but it has happened. People with significant mental health issues, uh, and that's why part of the pathway to surgery is—it's very complicated and very patient-centered. And part of it is making sure that people are ready. And there are different—you know—different you know, different things people do to get to surgery. It's beyond the scope to talk of this. It's beyond the scope of this talk to talk about all that. But there are other things. So. Anyway, quality of life is extremely improved. Uh, Female to male genital gender-confirming surgery is much more complicated. Um, Just in terms of there are more stages of surgery, male to female is generally a single surgery. For female to male, where we seek to create a penis, if that's what they want, a phallus, um, and then remove the vagina and do other things, the uterus... uh, and then put a penile prosthesis. This is done over not just one surgery, but at least two to three surgeries. Um, Very briefly, um, the gold standard to make a phallus, and not all transgender men want a phallus, made a big one like this. Uh, There are other options I should cover. There's something called metoidioplasty where we can do some reconstructive surgery to create a small penis from the clitoris. When they're on testosterone for a long time, Trans men, their clitorises get very masculinized and are like like a smallish penis. And uh, we can create a urethra so that they can pee from the end of that or without a urethra, but they have something small that looks and feels like a penis to them. One limitation to that is that it doesn't get erect. The other options, we create a penis using tissue from somewhere else in the body. And the gold standard is the radial artery forearm free flap. We take skin from the arm uh, one long segment, one segment will be for the urethra. That's the in the middle, top, middle. It's a smaller rectangle. And then the bigger segment is to make the penis. Um, so it ends up being a tube within a tube. And we make the penis here, and we place it just where it goes, in a natal man on the body. And um, this is what it looks like after surgery. Uh, hair to cover the arm, area on the arm, can be taken from different parts of the body. Um, but as you can see, it we can make a very... Uh, natural-looking penis um, at the end of the day with this, uh, and then with an erectile device, one that gets hard and functions like a penis. Um, There's—I don't, I don't mention it in the slide, but there's ways of achieving er- erogenous sensation in these penises, believe it or not, where we can take the main sensory nerve from the arm and connect it to one of the two clitoral nerves. And what I showed, I studied this when I was in England and published on it, Number one, the clitoris itself, sensation doesn't decrease when you cut one of the two clitoral nerves. And they can get erogenous sensation where they can, they can truly achieve orgasm with penetration using their penis alone. Um, uh, so what we do with the nerves um, is, is very important to, to, restoring, to, to, to restoring erogenous sensation to the penis. The other strategy is to move the native clitoris Uh, which they were born with, into the penis, into the base area, just below the skin, so that with with penetration, the clitoris, uh, which is still highly sensate, is stimulated, and they they can achieve orgasm that way. Other sources of tissue are the thigh. Um, We do other surgeries to create this sort of head-like appearance or glands-like appearance to the penis. Um, And then we use penile prosthetics to achieve a state of erection. Um, I'm just about done here. Um, Common questions for these Men for you know, for people that have undergone this surgery, uh, can they achieve orgasm with the phallus? Yes, um, depending on the type of surgery they had and whether we do these nerve anastomoses. Um, and it's even better again where we bury the clitoris in the shaft um, does not moving the clitoris does not reduce its sensation. And these patients, I didn't mention it here, but these patients like the trans women will say. Because I asked them specifically, "Is the quality of your orgasm? How, how would you compare it now, after you've had all this surgery, to an orgasm that you may have had before you ever had any of these surgeries?" And they will say it's better now. And most of them have the insight to say it's it's it feels probably just as good. It's certainly not worse, but just as good. But it, it's just it's more m- meaningful, and it feels better to me because it's with the body that I'm you know I, I, I think I always needed to have. Uh, Satisfaction, again, like with the other surgeries, is extremely high, and regret, anecdotal. Um, Pre- and post-surgery for these patients, as you can imagine, these patients have these complex surgeries, but they're also uh, people subject to the same other issues that non-trans people are. Aging, menopause, hormone therapy fluctuations when they get estrogen or testosterone, Uh, cancer, trans people get cancer. Um, and then other some of the other post-surgical and post-treatment same things I mentioned for men and women, uh, wound healing, strictures, uh, etc. Um, and I think I showed this slide already for men and women. It's all of these issues are the same. So that's the again the commonality uh, of this talk is that uh, you know every it's the same for every group. They face just subtle differences maybe with their surgeries and treatments. But uh, all of these things are important and they're important to focus on. And just like for uh, non-trans people, uh, management involve a partner, uh, familiarize them, they, I coach them to and encourage them to familiarize themselves with their new genitals, um, and find discover what feels good and where. Uh, and how to make it feel good, etc. Uh, and then, of course, medical therapy. I use pentoxyphiline for my patients also to uh, improve, uh, to facilitate restoration of uh, nerve function and sensation. Um, I'm going to skip this. I do have an app coming out, pelvic Health, that's for trans people. Also, Kegel exercises I think are important. These people have urinary issues, and I think this app is very helpful for them as well for that. Here at UCSF, we do... I, but also my colleagues, uh, do a lot of research and, and, uh, in this area, uh, sexual medicine. I do a lot of transgender. I'm very focused on sexual uh, erogenous sensation. There's a lot we don't know about it. Um, and uh, I think uh, this area, one of the things I like about transgender health and surgery is that there are, it, 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 it begs a lot of questions that are common to other areas of medicine. So um, it's very fruitful and, I think, endlessly interesting. Uh, but as is sexual function for non, you know, for men and women, uh, natal men and women. So again, I'll close with the, the theme of commonality and uh, and sort of end there. And I hope this has been useful to everyone. Thank you, and I'd love to answer any questions that you might have. Uh, pointing. So go right ahead if you have one. Uh, the question was, is atrial fibrillation dangerous for sexual activity? So a couple things. One, uh, if it's – so I, I think um, as it – so atrial fibrillation, as some of you may know, it's, it's an unorganized and uncontrolled – it can be erratic or it can just be in a pattern but not a normal pattern uh, – fluctuation of – I mean contraction of the atria in the heart. There's four chambers, the up the two upper chambers that feed blood into the ventricles. Those can do this uh, contract, and um, and one of the issues with that is that they, you know they, because blood doesn't move very well, they can get clots in the heart. So many of these patients are on blood thinners. So if it's for a man, a man on blood thinners may be a little bit more subject to bleeding with injections or with a penile injury and such. For women, I think for men and women both, from a cardiovascular standpoint, um, I guess it depends on, you know, the quality of uh, of, of sort of cardiac function in general, and I, I think it just makes sense to run by, uh, you know, run any proposed treatment or plan or even just am I healthy enough for sex by your cardiologist or by one's cardiologist. Um, I'm not a cardiologist, so I can't expound too much on this, but I think that uh, the blood thinning issue, many of the, those patients are on blood thinners, and then just to the extent that atrial fibrillation predicts for other cardiovascular issues, I would encourage patients to speak to their cardiologist and just have a discussion about that. So atrial fibrillation doesn't affect in Well, so it, it can, if it leads to decreased or altered blood outflow um, you know, from the heart, uh, you know, I guess very directly, yes. But it's, I'd say yes, but indirectly, via cardiovascular, general cardiovascular function. Again, at least for erections in the penis, men need blood flow, reliable blood flow, and robust blood flow. Naturally, baseline good health level blood flow to the penis for for good sexual fun, erectile function. Did someone else have a question? Yes, ma'am. Yes, so, so, so the question is, it's a part statement and then question. The question's about whether or not uh, regret is actually that low in transgender uh, people that undergo genital surgeries. Um, I stated earlier that it was very, very uncommon, uh, rare, and uh, and you, the, 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 the person asking the question said it's, you know, in her review of something, Of some, read, she read somewhere that it's up to 33%. I don't think that's correct. I don't think... See, part of the issue is that just as, you know, think about how much you heard and read about transgender anything five years ago, uh, before Caitlyn Jenner, before this, that. I mean, all you know, know, there's been a very steady rise in just familiarity with this topic in the media, but also in research. And a lot of these studies, uh, very few studies on this population, uh, and they weren't especially well done. You know, people were doing the best studies they could with what they had at the time. And, and I think if you look at literature that's more recent, um, these patients, you know, the incidence of suicide after treatment, and again, treatment, I didn't, beyond the scope of this lecture, but treatment is not just surgery. In fact, surgery tends to be one of the later things, one of the last things that people get. It's, it's you know, mental mental health uh, therapy with a counselor or a therapist uh, to, to help them I, you know, get their, you know, with, to help them adjust to their, to deal with their gender dysphoria and figure out what moves they can make to treat it, to change it. Hormone therapy, living in the identified with gender. These are all things that people do well before they get surgery. And, and so, surgery, it's important to emphasize, it's not people show up and get surgery, it's part of a process. And there's an organization called the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH. It's a fantastic. It's the international. It's the organization internationally. Uh, about 80% of its members are from the states, but health professionals of all and from all areas of medicine uh, focused on transgender health. And they have an, uh, something called WPATH gui- standards of care guidelines. They're not laws or anything. They're just quality guidelines that talk about the process. And if you're interested, it's an area to look. It's very well cited and it's up to date. Um, and I think it'll answer a lot of questions uh, that you might have. But Short answer is I disagree with that number. It's called WPATH, World Professional Association for Transgender Health. If you just look up WPATH and transgender, you'll find it. And the document you want, it's called the Standards of Care. The most recent version is, I think, seven. Of course, my pleasure. Yes. Uh, The question is, is there any role, thank you, uh, any role for Trental or... That's the trade name. The other name is pentoxyphylline. For uh, women who've had gynecologic surgeries that have resulted in decreased sensation, um, the answer is I think yes, and I think there's a lot of literature to support this. Um, You know, um, and I'd go a step further. I think for scarring, a lot of the literature focuses on scarring as well. Um, You know, there may not be a paper on the exact surgery and the exact issue that X, Y, or Z person had, but, you know, in our field, you know, you, we understand that when something works for something, there's a good chance it'll work for something else, and maybe it's a gyneco- your gynecologist that may want to explore that uh, and, 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 and so forth. What, one of the things we found about this drug is that it's, it's uh, you know, it has a very minimal side effect profile, the worst side effect is is uh, stomach upset, so People take it with food. Uh, the only slightly annoying thing is it has to be taken about three times a day. Um, but uh, but it we have found I mean it's given routinely by people not in my field for diabetic uh, neuropathy of the feet. So it you know if it helps for sensation for that why wouldn't it help for something else? Um, you know with radiation you know the blood vessels to nerves go nerve function decreases we think not because of blood vessels to the nerves get damaged by the radiation so the nerve suffers and nerves in part give sensation. So we have found it very helpful. We've shown in our lab that with animal models um, in a dose-dependent curve where we damage the erectile nerve in rats that uh, with increasing doses of of pentoxyphylline or Trental nerve um, function is, is, uh, I mean erectile function is restored. So I think it's very likely to be beneficial but it's, it's a, I'm commenting on an area that I'm not, I don't have particular expertise in, so I would, my suggestion would be to talk about it with your gynecologist. But to look in the literature, too, and see what you find. Yeah. Another question from anybody? Yes, sir. So the, the question is, uh, how does the treatment of psychogenic uh, uh, erectile dysfunction work? Is that correct? Okay. So you stated that in, as a urologist I don't treat it. In fact, we do treat it. Uh, we treat anybody with erectile dysfunction. What I was trying to delineate in that ta- that part of the talk is that people come with erectile dysfunction due to physical issues, what we call organic impotence, uh, and then psychogenic, which is non, non-physical related. The typical psychogenic erectile dysfunction patient will be... Let's say a young man who started having becoming sexually active a little later in life and uh is a little embarrassed about it and hasn't had any partners and you know is sort of moving towards having intercourse with a partner and is very anxious about it and has maybe preconceived notions about what he should or should, be, should not be doing or achieving the size of his penis. It's like a million things that people, we all get self-conscious about. Uh, so that's kind of a typical extreme example, but uh, no, we, we treat anybody with erectile dysfunction, and as I said um, kind of at the beginning of the lecture, the, uh, the cornerstone of this treatment <laughs> is, uh, is, um, is, is talking to the person and understanding what their issues are, and what their expectations are, and specifically what the problem is. So for someone with psychogenic erectile dysfunction, who first of all, they don't come in saying, I have psychogenic erectile dysfunction. They come in saying, I have, erect- I can't, you know, I have problems achieving an erection. But, so that's a diagnosis that I or my colleagues would make. One of the questions is, do you have morning erections? And I'll say, oh, great. Well, that suggests that things seem to be working, and you know, can you achieve an erection when you're masturbating? Oh, yeah, no problem. So, and then you start talking to somebody, you say, well, if you can achieve it while masturbating, if you can achieve it, you know, while while you're asleep, chances are, my sense is that you may not have a problem down here. It may be these other issues. And then we, the conversation segues a little bit more into, I think, first education. You know, I explain that, look, a lot of things will short-circuit your ability to have an orgasm, to, to, enough with the orgasm, uh, short-circuit your ability to have an erection, uh, and these are the factors, and... These are things that are strategies that I think help other people. Talking with your partner, you know, involving you know her or him into the into the sexual event, you know, sexual activity, and say, look, you have to you know be honest with your partner and say, look, I'm a little nervous, I haven't done you know X, Y, or Z. So, again, I think it starts with listening and then getting a better sense of what the issues are, and then we can kind of tailor you know as a physician uh, our approach to it, and then communicating that to them so that they understand it. Yeah, my pleasure. We have time, so I would love any other questions that you may have about anything. Uh, I covered a lot of material, so. Anyone else? So let me repeat the question. Uh, how common is... So, so the, the question was, you know, Caitlyn Jenner and Chastity Bono, relatively new presence in, in, in the media, Um how common? Now that we're talking about this a lot more, how common is it? Um, I think it's it's much more common than we think. Um, the other part of the question, part two, was before I forget, is how, how much suffering? I mean, or you were sort of trying to get at, you know, how hard is it to be transgender? Maybe. And how hard to find treatment? Yeah. So, so the to get at the first part. Um, we don't have, as I said earlier, the studies in this po- for this population have historically been very limited, very small, not good quality. Not that people weren't trying to do a good job, but you know there, there wasn't a lot of data out there to to make studies with and to do studies. Uh, and people were not out, so it's hard to do a study when people don't come to your clinic or respond to an ad in the paper. To, you know what I mean? It, it was a very closeted community because society was so. Disapproving of it and so ostracizing of it. Um, you know, in one of my slides for other talks on, on this, I have you know incidence and prevalence studies for trans, you know, uh, um, being transgender, transgenderism for the last twenty years, and every successive study cites a higher and higher incidence. Which tells you that over time, when people study this, every with with time they're finding out the numbers are actually bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that trend is not because the studies are necessarily better, but people are coming out more and they're just being accounted for more. Um, the best, you know, the most recent study was a part of a state census study from Massachusetts that found that 0.5 percent, so half a percent, of the population. Responded to identifying as transgender. In that study, they didn't break it down between transgender male, man, or a woman, or gender non-binary, but just transgender. So half a percent—that's a lot. I mean, in this country, the estimates are it's it's a, it's a, it's a lot of people. In England and other places where they offer the surgery, and they have been for years, every year they get more. You know, it's like doubling and triplings of requests for the surgery. It's not that it's, it's it's not something that's happening overnight. It's just people are coming out of the woodwork and self identifying, and you know, seeking treatment. So it's I, I think it's it's I think everyone agrees it's vastly underestimated. Um, to to speak to your second question uh, about how hard is it, and now I think the previous one of the previous questioners, this number of thirty three percent suicide, I don't think it's it's not thirty three percent suicide after surgery. It's before surgery. Suicide is extremely, suicide attempts is sadly not uncommon among transgender people because, to speak to your question, it's so hard to live. Uh, you know, imagine living, being, you know, sort of li- living, uh, you know, not being able to express something as fundamental as whether we identify inside as a man or a woman. So, a point to make is that I'll just veer off from both of your questions for a second. The two terms, gender and sexuality, and they get confused a lot by people. And I think one of the things that Caitlin did very, very nicely is that she made that point in black and white terms. She said, "Because someone asked, you know, do you date men or women?" And she's like, "Look, the definition of gender—it's an internal, inner sense of our, you know, who we are as as a man or a woman or." as a, you know, as a gender, you know, how we, it's an internal sense of self. Um, sexuality is about practice and about how we interact out with people, with things outside of ourselves, our partners, uh, you know, that. But so they're very different things. So there are transgender people that date people of the, the same gender uh, of different, you know, it's it's as common and as varied as non non-trans, you know, among non-transgender people, there are people that are gay, that are straight, that are bisexual, that are this, that, and the other. So there are apples and oranges, and and I think that having to live um, without being able to express something as fundamental as this is has to be profoundly difficult, and that's why the suicide, uh, the the rate of suicide attempt and sadly suicide, successful suicide. I mean, actuals, you know committing suicide, is, 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 is extraordinarily high in this population. You know, one of the interesting – so I ask my patients a lot of questions. I learn a lot from them. And one of the things I ask is when – oh, so, so the term – let me just get – the third term I want to introduce you to is, if you don't know it already, it's called gender dysphoria. And that's this sort of profound sense of misalignment of that your, your gender on the inside doesn't match what you see and the world sees on the outside. When you look in the mirror, when you go to a swimming pool, when you take your clothes off to change somewhere, go to the beach. If you think about it, you know, we're actually, we expose ourselves as part of life very commonly. And to, to be totally out of alignment with that, where your body on the outside doesn't match inside, it just creates this, you know, this horrible, a lot of patients, you know, anxiety, depression, kind of like a white noise. Um a lot of patients aren't sexually active until they have surgery because it's, you know, many, many, not all, but report a, a distaste and sort of a, a just a, a very unpleasantness feel or repulsion with their genitals. It's just wrong, you know. I'm, I don't want to generalize. Not everyone feels this way, but many of the people that I've met and treated do. Um so, you know, one of the things I ask my patients is, at what was the earliest age you remember feeling gender dysphoria, that your body on the outside didn't match your body on the inside? And I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's almost like a parlor trick, because I have residents in the room or medical students. Ninety percent of patients, their responses fall into two age ages, age four or five, just like clockwork. You ask them, and they'll say, oh, Age four or age five, a few people are puberty, but it's, I'd say, less than 10%. And what's interesting about age four or five is, what's your earliest memory? You know, when Oliver Sacks was sadly dying recently, you know, he he wrote this book, Awakenings, and about memory and this and that. And one of the points I remember in one of his op-ed pieces is something about how, you know, memory stops at about four or five. Meaning when we're adults, we can remember everything up to about age four or five. And beyond that, it's it's extremely hazy, if not just like static images. But people, we don't remember events and dialogue and you know moving pictures kind of thing. So what that tells me is that it's a it's a core you know if you remember at four or five no you know kids aren't sexual being you know what I mean they're child sex you know it, it's not a sexual thing it's a it's a core thing. So I think it's got to be I've never experienced it I'm not transgender but. It has to be, it's very moving when I talk, hear my patients talk about it. So, yes. Do, uh, do, do we see a lot of patients who are hermaphrodites, either who are or seek to be hermaphrodites? I think you meant probably who are hermaphrodites. So, people with genitals, both male and female genitals. And the answer is that we do see a number of people like this, but they're always children. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anatomic. Physio, you know, it's a, it's a congenital deformity or a, a congenital, um, um, you know, disorder where people's genes, the child's genes, make genitalia of both types. As you know, we all, we're all wired to have genitalia of one or the other sex, and at some part during our development, the male is shut off and we end up being female or, or you know, it's, it's, and so forth. So some kids, unfortunately, are born with a mix of both due to some disorder in the genetic. Process, And what's interesting is that the answer to that uh, is, well, the big lesson we've learned, not the answer, but the big lesson we've learned with those children is that it's, we, we've, we've often failed when we've assigned them a gender. Again, speaking to the, the, the point I made earlier, that gender is something we don't pick, we don't control, we don't, you know, we have no say in it. It is, you are what you are. I mean, who would choose a life to be, you know, as ostracized, one of the most ostracized, historically, groups in our, in, our, in our communes, in our society? People who don't fit into, you know, any things as basic as, well, are you a man or a woman? Well, oh, you, you know what I mean? Like, and that's why, you know, socioeconomic status is low for this population, suicide rate is high. No one, I think, would go out of their way to beget all that. So it's, it's, the point is that it isn't choice, just like kids when they feel it's just gendered is age four, 4 or 5. I think they don't know what's going on other than uh, I think I have a penis, but I, I think I really shouldn't or I, I should be like my sisters or my cousin, you know what I mean, or vice versa. So, um, uh, you know, transgender people are not hermaphrodites. And I, I don't think, uh, you know, in general they, anyone seeks to have genitals of both types. There, you know, there's a a book called the DSM five, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual for psychological issues, uh, disorders, and stuff. And you know, humankind is so varied. That's part of what's so fascinating about medicine. And there are people that, you know, may want two types of genitals and this and that. But that's not. And those are transgender. They're not transgender. I mean, those people fall into their own category. And I don't think that should be confused with or put in the same group as you know transgender. You know. Being transgender, is it's, again, the dissonance between your gender on the outside and your gender on the inside. But my question wasn't do people seek to be? Heard? Oh. My question was actually what you alluded to, which is, like, you said, you know, we often make the wrong choice about right. doing. Um, a, a right. A, a right. And what do you do now? What What do we do now? So I don't. I'm not a pediatric urologist, but I, I do know that my colleagues. I think that the movement is to let people try to give people as much choice as they can, and that's hard when a child is born. A child doesn't even speak. You don't know what they want. Um, we try to figure out maybe what 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 gender uh, was the, the, you know their brains are more imprinted with. To what extent is you know, is it the male genitals? It's the anomaly, and they're mainly it's more female. I, you know, there's different approaches to it. I don't have the expertise really to comment on that, but I I think that we've definitely moved away from the area of assigning people. You will be this because it looks like you're a boy, or you know what I mean. Um, so, and those are very challenging cases. And I think also allowing a little bit of flexibility. So if the child as he or she grows older, sort of starts to identity comes in and says, well, wait a minute, I'm not quite, you know that, that it's, it, it can be altered, uh, changed in a, in a harmless, you know, minim, you know, least traumatizing fashion. We're done. Th- thank you very much. Again, it was a pleasure being here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.